Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you'll find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. It's an exciting day today. I've got some big news. My new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That Is Revolutionizing Sports, is officially available for pre-order on Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. So, if you've been enjoying the podcasts, I really believe you will love this new book, It's all about connecting you with the leading experts on the front lines of performance from around the world and diving into how they support athlete health, fueling, recovery, and mindset. And of course, if you do decide to pre-order the book before its release on May 24th, we've got some cool bonuses for you. My good friends at Organica will be giving away $150 supplement gift packs every two weeks, You will also get with your pre-order a behind-the-scenes special podcast episode with some of the world expert guests I interviewed for the book. You'll also be entered to win a one of three one-to-one visits with myself with a pre-order. And finally, if you are a clinic or gym and want to pre-order the book, you not only get the 50% discount, but also a chance to win a talk at your facility. So just email us at info at drbubs.com and you will get more info and be entered to win there. And of course, this dovetails wonderfully into today's episode, today's rewind episode, where the focus is on sleep and circadian rhythms. Six of the world-leading experts who appear in the book will also be on today's episode, and you will hear from Dr. Amy Bender from Canada talking sleep recommendations, potential pitfalls of the Nappuccino, and strategies to support better sleep. Dr. Dan Party from the U.S. will discuss circadian rhythms and implications for weight loss and health. Dr. Shri Ma will talk about her work in the NBA, the benefits and limitations of the NBA nap, as well as her take on when it's appropriate to implement that nappuccino or coffee nap. Then Dr. Ian Dunican from Ireland will discuss caffeine use and implications on sleep and recovery in professional rugby players. Dr. McKelly, Dr. McKelly Lastella from Australia diving into athlete chronotypes and how it impacts training and recovery. And finally, Dr. Nora Simpson from Stanford Medical School discussing the impacts of sleep loss on cognition and memory. Awesome. It is always a lot of fun for me to circle back to the older episodes and rediscover some of the great insights and practical applications from uh, all the tremendous experts that have appeared on the show. You can link to the full original episodes in the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And remember, you can find all of the experts that have appeared on Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast on my YouTube channel, iTunes, or your favorite pod catching platform. All right, let's pay the bills here before we get started. A quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, get your pre-order in today to take advantage of all those bonuses. And without further ado, Season 3, Episode 9. Enjoy. You know, a lot of people aren't getting as much sleep as we'd like them to um, and rely on a lot of caffeine, etc. So is there a, a number in terms of total sleep that you guys were looking for? or? So generally, the recommendation from the National Sleep Foundation and sleep um, bodies is for a normal uh, or for a human is to get between seven and nine hours for an adult. Uh, 
if you're a teenager, it's more like eight to 10. So there is a range in the amount of sleep um, per individual. And there's uh, age, age effects as well. So the younger you are, the more sleep that you need. Um, but in terms of a healthy, normal sleep range, it's between seven and nine hours. Gotcha. And that idea around circadian rhythms, that when we get up in the morning and the time we go down for sleep, um, you know, any insights in there in terms of what you guys saw with, uh, you know, is maintaining the same wake time and sleeping time generally the best practice or what types of observations? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we know that timing also has an impact on the quality of sleep that we're getting. So if you're more of a night owl, you know, and your schedule permits you, it would be advisable to go to sleep later and wake up later. If you're an earlier bird, you know, try to go to sleep earlier and wake up earlier. But a lot of times there's disadvantage for the night owls because of the fact that they have to get up for work and those kind of things. So there's um, a mismatch between their internal rhythm and their schedule their work schedule, let's say, and we call that social jet lag. So there's kind of a mismatch between internal and what you're required to do. I think that's a um, big problem these days as well, because we've got a lot of people who, yes, yeah, stay up later to get the job done, because obviously there's potentially fewer distractions for a lot of people in the evening. Um, but like you said, I mean, they're getting up in the morning, they've got to get the job done. So overall, the sleep quantity is going to really decline. Um, so any... Mm-hmm. Any suggestions there? Is it better to, uh, you know, for that type of person to, to just get up earlier and, and, and get the work done there? Or if they had the perfect, if they could control everything just to wake up later, like you mentioned, and start work later? Yeah, so a lot of times we'll see extreme evening types. I, I wouldn't say a lot of times, but some of the time we'll see extreme evening types in athletes, which can be counterproductive depending on their training times. So uh, light is actually one of the, the biggest zeitgeibers, or it has the most effect on our circadian rhythm. So in some of your listeners who are more of those evening types that do need to get up early for work, we would recommend getting light exposure as soon as you can early in the morning upon awakening. And a lot of time in the winter, that's very difficult to do. So we would recommend a light therapy box. Um, use it for 20 minutes. And then that helps set your circadian rhythm to the time that you need to you know, perform and, and be up for work. That's terrific. I mean, I think that's great advice, especially for people who, you know, again, living in Canada, if we get true winter climate, so the sun doesn't show its face until later in the morning so that's a, that's a great strategy now if people get even out you know even if it's a cloudy day uh, is that external light you know enough to kind of help reset those rhythms as well let's say they get outside at 7 30 and the sun's out even though it's cloudy in the winter yeah um cloudy cloudy if you look at the lux levels of let's say a sunny day versus a cloudy day um and you compare that to indoor light levels even on a cloudy day you're getting way more exposure than if you if you're just using your normal overhead lights Um, but i think the key here is uh the timing of it so so currently in the winter you know our sun doesn't rise until i'm not sure exactly what the time but you know 7 8 a.m where i'm at um and so for someone who needs to be to work at 8 a.m you would definitely you can't rely on just the natural light, light, dark cycle. You would want to have that light box to, to be able to use when you first wake up. Gotcha. The other important thing uh, with that is you want to block light in the evening. So a lot of the athletes that we see and a lot of just the general population, they use electronic devices right before bedtime. And that light is actually telling our brain to wake up and is kind of further perpetuating the problem to be delayed. So studies have shown that um, if you have uh, iPad exposure, let's say an hour before bedtime, versus a paper book, you're just reading from a paper book, they found that with the iPad, because of that light, 
you wake up more often during the night, your your circadian rhythm is delayed, so your melatonin gets delayed. It takes you longer to fall asleep, and it can really impact your sleep quality. Yeah, so that's blocking light in the evening is important. That's a big uh, topic, especially you know for the average folk and you know us at Canada Basketball, our younger athletes are tweeting and Instagramming and Facebooking, you know, in the hours before bed. So it can definitely be uh, something that contributes to that light exposure. In terms of some of this new research that shows, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, so maybe you can shed some light for us. Um, this idea of having a coffee even before a nap seems to increase the alertness when you wake up. But I guess my question is, is it even, you know, do you still reap the benefits of the nap itself if you're caffeinating before uh, before the nap? Yeah, actually, uh, research has shown that that is kind of a new trend. Um, I've heard the term uh, nappuccino, where you... <laughs> nice, you I like that. <laughs> you caffeinate before the nap, and I actually get a lot of questions on this for athletes, uh, so I think it's pretty prevalent information out there, but actually the research shows that you perform just as well if you don't take the caffeine. And my concern would be if you're taking a nap at let's say 3 p.m. Um, and you take that caffeine prior to the nap, is that caffeine gonna impact your nighttime sleep and your ability to fall asleep? So that's kind of my concern. Um, the later you take caffeine, the harder, you know, the longer it's in your bloodstream prior to sleep. Um, so I don't know. I think, I'm, I mean, I'm as kind a of more of a fan of not taking the caffeine with the nap. If you keep the nap to 20 minutes, you're not going to have that issue with feeling groggy. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely one as a clinician. I say people are definitely over caffeinating typically in the afternoon to begin with. Um, and the impact on sleep and whatnot. So I'm always a little bit leery to be recommending adding more in in the afternoon when you know the nap seems to be sufficient itself. Uh, but that's great information there to add. Um, you know, on competition days, that 20 minute nap and and rest days 90 minutes. Now, for somebody who's working in an office space, like a uh, executives or entrepreneurs, is that you know is a 20 minute nap going to be beneficial for them too in terms of just um, you know cognitive function and, and being productive at work? Exactly. So the research shows that those who nap are more productive than those who don't. And so that that includes executives and CEOs and high performing individuals that this nap is going to be beneficial for you. Um, a lot of people will say, I don't have time to nap. There's I there's no way for me to fit in a nap. But can you can you skip that uh, Starbucks run in the afternoon? I mean, the time it takes you to run and get a coffee is, you could be napping during that time. Um, can you maybe find some time during your lunch to find an area, a quiet space where you can try and um, nap? And it does take it does take practice, so it's not something that you can just do right away. Um, it will take practice. And having those relaxation techniques, those breathing techniques, uh, there's also this technique called cognitive shuffling, which I really like for even when if you have problems falling asleep, you think of a, a five-letter word, so let's say, or uh, not too long of a word, so let's say bedtime, and you, you imagine all of the objects that you can, starting with B, so ball, bag, baby, book. Once you fulfill, once you can't think of any more, you move on to E and you just imagine those random objects and move on to D and before you get to the end of the word, you will be asleep and it, it kind of simulates uh, what we're doing before we fall asleep. Oh, that's fantastic. I really like that. I'm going to try that tonight. You, know, you spoke on um, sleep and weight gain recently. Was it the paleo effects? Can you share some of the uh, latest insights uh, on, on that research? Yeah, sure. So try to summarize um, the work. So I gave a bit of a history about, um, you know, all, a lot of the work that's gone on in the area. I started off talking about timing, right? So we were talking about circadian rhythms. Bod that's really talking about body timing. And 
what you want, where your body to function best. And that, that, how that translates into, you know, performing best on the court, performing best in your life, having a good positive, you know, positive mood, being your favorite version of yourself in, in every way. You really want your rhythms to be synchronized and uh, working together. So imagine a symphony playing, right? And if some of the symphony is, uh, you know, a couple, you know, a couple uh, measures off, then it's going to not, it's not going to sound very, it's not going to be optimal at all. And um, that's what a, a, a really strongly um, aligned circadian rhythm what will do for you is it helps your body work at its optimal function. So one idea that I brought up is uh, this researcher, Dina Arbel, she had taken mice and she fed, um, she fed them the same amount of calories and she also monitored their physical activity and found that they got the same amount of physical activity. Now the difference is that they fed one group uh, a all their calories when they usually sleep. Uh, so same amount of calories, but what they found is that over a six-week period, the group that was getting their calories at a time when they usually sleep um, had a significantly increased, a significant increase in weight gain compared to the other group. Wow. And yeah, so they were they gained a lot of fat. A lot of the a lot of the weight gain wasn't was fat as well. Next, Laura Funkin, who's somebody that I found on my, my podcast not too long ago. Instead of feeding mice at a time when they were overweight, what she did is she had uh, she fed mice the same amount of calories and had the same amount of activities, the same. But one group, uh, while they were sleeping, again, and their sleep time was when they usually slept, she had dim light on at night. So their sleeping cages, instead of being in dark darkness, they were in light. And what do they find is that the mice then wanted to eat later and later every night. And they too then had statistically significant increases in body weight compared to the group that was getting the same amount of calories and had the same amount of physical activity over time. And so timing really matters. And um, I published a blog uh, probably a year ago now, but talking uh, about some work out of the Wiseman Institute and where essentially we make different enzymes um, that are suited for certain caloric needs or certain, uh, you know, to, to help us metabolize different sorts of substrates at different times. And so the timing of food really, really matters. I'm going to record a podcast tomorrow with um, Greg Potter and Jeff Rothschild on this very subject. Um, and so there's still more to be worked out there, but we obviously know that fasting and time-restricted feeding windows are, are very becoming very popular. And uh, and the circadian, whenever you're talking about fasting and time-restricted feeding, we're also really talking about circadian biology too. And so that's a, um, a, a very interesting, promising field. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing stuff as well for, you know, for regular folk who are just trying to improve their health or lose weight, because just being able to uh, synthesize this to some simple, straightforward approaches as in, you know, don't eat too much food after dinner, after 7 p.m. or whatever it might be um, that, the, that we're seeing in the findings is, is sort of a, an amazing way to, to achieve a lot of these benefits without making things too, too complicated, isn't it? You, you know, you're absolutely right. And the easier we can make it, then um, the better, because then the guidance is simple, it's easy to implement, and you can have, I mean, one thing that we know is anything that can have a hard and fast rule that is easy to remember and implement, or, you know, at least it's easy to remember so that it's easier to implement, it can be very effective. Kind of like the car carbs are bad, you know, from a while ago. While it's not true, it's effective, because what it does is it gives you this easy-to-follow heuristic that can help people make better few choices. Now, the problem with that is, of course, it's it's um, it's not entirely true, but it's it's still effective. So that's what leads to a lot of, you know, debate on the internet about you know what the, what, what, you know, how should we be educating on the subject? But anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> For sure. I mean, it's always interesting yeah. how yeah, it's uh, you know, even prescribing sort of a lower carb diet. I mean, like you said, I mean, in, in the short term, you just take away all the processed food, the sugars, etc. So you do get gains, but you know whether the, the total calories obviously still being important and various other things. So it's almost like giving people enough information that they need at the time and then uh, furthering the discussion down the road once things uh, plateau, right? Yeah, actually, I'll, um, I wrote a blog on ketones and carbs. And I'll send it to you. It was probably the most popular blog post I'd ever written. Um, it gotten a lot of, I got a lot of traction in the time it came out. But I talk about how I, I used a, a, a saying that it might be that um, while we have to cut carbs in order to get into ketosis, um, oftentimes it was described that ket the carbs were the problem, so you had to cut them so much, and that ket you know ketosis was kind of a secondary 
result versus ketones are the desired result. You have to cut carbs to get there, but the carbs aren't necessarily bad themselves. And so, in fact, a high fat diet that's not in that's not generating ketones actually might be problematic for a lot of people. So it might be darkest before the dawn, if you will. And um, anyway, it's worth worth taking a look if people are interested in the subject. I think. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And and. Finally, on the, on the sleep and weight gain, I mean, obviously people now, I mean, what is it, 30% of the population now aren't even getting six hours of sleep per night. Uh, is yeah. this another sort of just low-hanging fruit for folks to just get to bed earlier to help with, uh, you know, whether it's cravings, et cetera, that lead to excessive caloric intake and weight gain? Yeah, so I only partially addressed your, your question, but um, I'll take a circuitous route to answer that one. So there's the other aspect, the other um, component aside from timing that I spoke to was the metabolic effects. Um, and so we know that sleep loss is a stressor. And when you are awake, you have greater activity of your sympathetic nervous system than you do in your sleep. And so if you're spending more time awake, then you have, um, just by nature of being awake, you're, you're, you're now spending more time in a 24-hour period under control of the sympathetic nervous system. Downstream of that is activation of the HPA axis and the release of cortisol. And if you're over-releasing cortisol, at least in terms of what your body balance um, you know, desires, you can develop cortisol resistance at tissues. And cortisol, it helps to quell inflammation. And so if your tissues become insensitive to uh, cortisol, then you can, it's something that can contribute to chronic low-grade inflammation. We see that with Cushing syndrome or people that are on prednisone. Cushing syndromes are people that produce a lot of cortisol um, uh, as part of that condition and develop abdominal obesity and, and uh, higher levels of adiposity. So we know that sleep loss is a stressor. And um, we've seen now some work by Josie Broussard, who's now at the University of Colorado um, in, the, in the Department of Kenneth Wright as well. And um, she's looked at a couple nights of sleep loss on, on fat tissue and to see and notice that the uh, insulin's effectiveness at doing its job at storing uh, carbohydrates in your blood into fat tissue was massively reduced even after just a few nights of sleep loss. And so what happens then is that you have to release more insulin in order to generate an effect. So that's what can drive insulin up. Um, and it can also drive high levels of, of fasting glucose, et cetera. So that's why people that are healthy under four or five nights of sleep loss, they'll look like a pre-diabetic in terms of if you were to do an oral glucose tolerance test on them. So, um, yeah, now if we're, if you're, if your life is defined by, you know, your weeks, not getting enough sleep and then on the weekends playing catch up, you're essentially, you know, the risk is that you are, um, promoting a, a pre-diabetic and diabetic state. And that's exactly what was found. So if you kind of start, think about the mechanism so that we see that there's this cellular resistance to insulin after sleep loss, you see a clinical effect of increase increased blood sugar after in healthy people after a few nights of, of sleep loss. And then finally, if you look at epidemiology, a study by Dan Gottlieb at Boston, he looked at 1500 people uh, and was and looked at whether uh, and grouped them to so majority of the people were getting seven to eight hours of sleep. But just like you said, 30% of the sample was getting less than six hours. And if you were getting less than six hours of sleep, then um, that short sleep time associated with diabetes and paired glucose tolerance. And these are under conditions of sleep deprivation that are highly prevalent, right, in the United States. So that's a big problem. Transitioning over to the NBA, you know, I see the, you know, the red alerts and whatnot that you post when teams are going through heavy schedules or travel periods. Can you share a little bit with listeners, you know, what the implications are of fatigue and performance? Sure. So this was a fun project. It was... Um, it's called the MBA Schedule Alert Project that's in collaboration with ESPN and, and led by Baxter Holmes. And it was inspired actually by an observation that coaches intuitively knew that some games on the schedule were going to be difficult. And it wasn't because of the opponent. It was just because they understood that the scheduling circumstances could be um, quite grueling. So one of our goals, or at least mine was in, in this, was to increase awareness of the impact of sleep and recovery. How does that integrate with travel and the body clock? And ultimately, does that have an impact on performance of these elite athletes? So um, this project was launched last year in the 2016-2017 season, and we identified 42 games that uh, teams may be at risk of losing based on only scheduling factors. So, for example, game density, travel, 
recovery, sleep opportunities, and it did not factor in strength of team or injuries or resting players or any other factors that are unrelated to to basically the schedule. Um, that prediction was about 57% of these games are going to be lost based on the prior 2015 to 2016 season. So in the end, last year, we, we actually ended up correctly predicting about 69% of those games. That's incredible. And there was, <laughs> there was a higher tier we called the Red Alert games, which were 17 of them that were at greatest risk and had a prediction of about a 78% chance of loss, which I know is, sounds crazy. Um, but we actually ended up at 76.5%. So that was that first season, which we thought was quite intriguing. And so this year, we're back. We're back with Schedule Alert 2.0, and now there's 54 games that we've identified this year. Currently, to date, we've correctly pre- predicted uh, 34 of the 30. Uh, sorry, 34 of 44 games. So 77 percent. That's um, that's amazing. I imagine <laughs> the coaching staff now are just are just uh, you know following you on Twitter to make sure that they're up to speed on <laughs> which games they should be concerned you know, about. It, yeah, it's been fun to to see how readers have followed along and coaching and and teams um, sometimes have made um, comments about it along the way. You know, the part of it is to bring awareness to this area. And if readers or listeners want to follow along on ESPN, we do post the games every month at the top of the month and then review what happened in the games prior. So we got 10 left to go this season and, and hopefully we'll be back next year if, if you're interested in following the project. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And obviously the, the results will speak for themselves are incredible. Um, and while we're on the topic of NBA, obviously the, the NBA rhythm, um, you know, shoot arounds, guys get back to hotels and that NBA nap, that midday nap that can sometimes for a lot of players extend quite, quite a long way to, you know, an hour and a half, three hours sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of naps and then potentially some of the pitfalls if people are napping, you know, too long or too close to game time? Yes, the NBA nap is well known. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes I think it can be too long. I know you alluded to it being sometimes an hour and a half to three hours. And while in the big picture, I'm a fan of power naps, but a lot of times I'm recommending short 20 to 30 minute power naps and also considering when those are occurring. So the timing of it can be important. Usually I aim for the afternoon because that's when we have this dip in our circadian rhythms or a yep, dip in that sure. body clock. So it's easier to fall asleep in the afternoon. A lot of people attribute that to uh, food coma. It's not that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dip in circadian rhythms. But also pregame. So this actually can depend on when your competition or game is scheduled. Yes, in the NBA, this is why it often happens in the afternoon in, in anticipation of a night game. Um, but a lot of times these athletes, yes, are taking these long hour and a half, three hour naps. Um, And that's something we want to be mindful of. One, because you can wake up from these longer naps in those deeper stages of sleep and then feel more groggy and sluggish. I'm sure that that's ever happened to you, Mark, but you can feel more sluggish, right? And that's not how you want an athlete to go out. You don't know what day it is. You don't know where you are. Exactly. And so that's what we call sleep inertia. And and that's something I'm mindful of because um, we know that that can result in that grogginess and persist for a little while after. On top of that, when you take sometimes those two, three hour naps, it can make it harder for you to sleep at night. Right. And so that decreases your drive to sleep. And then that can be a quite vicious cycle because then these athletes are staying up much later. They can't sleep. And then that leads to um, this kind of continuous cycle. So in some, I would say I am a fan of power naps. I think they just need to be utilized as more of an energy boost um, uh, and timed correctly. They are not a replacement for adequate sleep at nighttime, but they they are a great strategy. And on top of that, have you ever tried the caffeine nap? I've heard of the, the nappuccino. I had Dr. Amy Bender on from the uh, yeah. CSI Calgary. So she'd mentioned the, uh, the caffeine before the nap, but maybe you could describe it for listeners as well. Sure. So caffeine nap, nappuccino, uh, same thing. It's uh, a strategy that I, I think works magic. But on one hand, um, you have to be sleep deprived enough to be able to fall asleep within five to 10 minutes. <laughs> so gotcha. first of all, that's not so that's- great uh, status. But hey, here's a here's a magic trick for you if that's uh, where you are right now. Definitely. But if you can fall asleep within five, 10 minutes, then if you down a cup of coffee, Caffeine takes about 15 minutes to kick in. You go take your 20-minute power nap, 
And then, bam, when you wake up, both the caffeine and the nap will have kicked in. And that's been shown to be actually more advantageous combined together than just caffeine alone or just the nap alone. Yeah, really interesting for people who need to obviously get a bit of rest, but also be able to to be on the ball, to function, maybe to play if they're athletes, to, to really perform after that uh, rest period. So that's a really interesting uh, uh, research. and. Just kind of circling back again to the naps, if a player is, again, sort of accumulated more of a sleep debt, is there some scenarios where you would uh, you know, advise a bit longer naps if it was uh, not impeding their ability to fall asleep at night? Is there a certain range or, or time frame, or would it be more trying to just add more of their sleep in terms of um, you know, the sleep through the night? I think that the goal that I try to recommend to my athletes is definitely consolidated sleep at night. Gotcha. And that would be the, the biggest... Um, the biggest win in my in my book to try and encourage them to do that but yes there are scenarios where say they're traveling on the road had an early morning flight so we know that they weren't getting a sufficient sleep the prior night then sometimes i will recommend the longer naps at an hour and a half um and i try to do that gradually too in terms of reducing naps so if someone is currently taking two to three hour naps i'm not saying necessarily to cut that down immediately to 20 minutes uh, i like to do that as a gradual process so there is some wiggle room in that that I do for recommend sure. for that middle ground of an hour and a half in scenarios like that where you're either transitioning or say, we know you didn't get adequate sleep the prior night because of travel. Um, sometimes you have to be creative <laughs> in, in how you get to these naps and in, into the very packed schedule for athletes. Well, I definitely share the same belief of just trying to, to nudge people towards things and add things in in a you know um, slow manner or a drip feed type manner. And of course, you know one of my main areas of focus is nutrition. And if we can talk now about maybe nutrition and sleep, and how does um, how does one's nutrition impact sleep? In particular, if we kind of stay on the the basketball NBA theme, I know a lot of players. Um, unfortunately after games might get, you know, sugar cravings, hunger cravings, and, you know, knocking back bags of Oreos or unfortunately snack foods and stuff. How might that impact sleep and, and what types of perhaps nutrition strategies might be uh, superior for them? This is a very fascinating area. <laughs> I think that there's a, a very, it's still very early in, I think a lot of the research and the integration between sleep and nutrition. I'm hoping more is going to come down the road. I, find this particular area very interesting because like you said I have seen NBA players like roll out of the game with huge pizzas and like spicy wings I'm like really are you gonna eat that right now <laughs> um, and I think a lot of them maybe sometimes not always cognizant that what they're eating could potentially affect their sleep and their recovery afterwards I think athletes are starting to wise up to that a little bit more about nutrition and hydration effects on their subsequent sleep but we still have a ways to go um you know, we don't advocate necessarily a huge meal right before you're going to go to bed, but obviously it's important to fuel properly after exercise and post game. Um, I recommend more of a protein and a complex carb as a pre-sleep snack or, or post game meal in particular. We don't really want, you know, big meals that are heavy and fried uh, to be sitting in there in these athletes right before they're going to head to bed. But we also want to sure. make sure that they're not waking up during the nighttime because they haven't fueled properly um, during uh, the post post game part. Um, I think that there are some earlier studies and small studies to suggest that some of uh, the nutritional habits or choices of what they're eating potentially could affect sleep architecture. And also some of the studies I think are starting to suggest about timing of meals and how that potentially could benefit uh, reducing jet lag and trying to um, integrate that into circadian strategies. Now, the foundation for this paper is we knew that um, caffeine was being used um, as an ergogenic aid in super rugby, and but we didn't really know to what extent it was being used, and we didn't know to what extent it had an effect on sleep and recovery. And so that was really the foundation or the precursor to commencing the study with the super rugby team. And when you guys looked at the, the caffeine intake, what were guys typically consuming before a game? You know, what was the range there? Yeah, so this is um this is pretty interesting. Um 
so it's probably just worth mentioning in the for the methods for this paper we did take saliva test we did take saliva samples from the team members approximately um two hours before the game and we took uh post-game samples as well and so we can use saliva instead of taking blood which is which correlates well to blood samples so we can use that in lieu of taking blood a little handier right and uh, yeah far more easier as well for the research <laughs> sure. team to collect the data um so what we did find was that there was a discrepancy what was reported and what was consumed so for example most players um there was 23 players in the squad that went to play the game that night so typically 15 players will be on the field and you'll have um, the remaining eight players as interchanges or substitutions that can come onto the onto the field during the game and the game lasts about 80 minutes game kicked off around 7 p.m that evening so it's quite a late game or an evening slash night game only nine of the players reported that they consumed caffeine and the main sources of caffeine consumption were homebrew coffee, make a home yourself in a plunger or drip uh, feed, cappuccinos, so typical coffees you get in a coffee shop, yep. tea, cola drinks, no-dose tablets, and chocolate. They were the main sources of caffeine. And most players reported consuming the caffeine between 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening with only a few reporting consuming caffeine after 6 p.m. in the evening. So most most athletes were uh, consuming the caffeine actually between 6 and 12. That's where most of the the percentage of the, of, of the caffeine consumption uh, fell. However, when we did look at what was reported and what really happened, we did find another discrepancy. So we found a significant increase in caffeine uh, change from pre-game to post-game so and that was in about 17 players so even though nine consumed that the only con nine reported to consume caffeine actually 17 of them had elevated levels of caffeine compared to pre-game so double and or so not reporting uh accurately is that it yeah not accurately and when we dug into that we actually found out why and this was very interesting and this was probably an oversight in in from us beforehand is we didn't understand to the extent that pre-workout was being consumed so pre-workout powders are generally consumed um you know uh, prior to a game or a training session um, and these things are very heavily dosed in caffeine and so they weren't actually counting this as a as a caffeine consumption so it's pretty interesting that number one, players were not informed that these pre-workout drinks had caffeine. Number two is there was a caffeine strategy, but it was verbalized and it, the players were told it wasn't actually administered. And we know men were, were not very good at listening to things. <laughs> and so we get told to take one scoop. One scoop is good. Two scoops is better. And three scoops were going to turn into a superhero. And so that's what was happening. People were just basically consuming this um, as much as they liked and no one was really having an oversight on it. And so that that contributed to the significant increase in caffeine from pre-game to post-game. So quite a significant increase in all the players. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting when I was reading your paper because it's definitely something that I see a lot um, with athletes over here, you know, working with recreational elite pros, oftentimes, you know, completely unaware of not only that there's caffeine in their pre-workout supplement, but even the amounts of caffeine that might be in there. And so, Ian, what, what kind of yeah. effects then on sleep duration, sleep efficiency? What's going on with the, with the players after this intake? Yeah, so that was kind of the, the key thing we wanted to look at. We wanted to see, you know, what was happening here with the effect of caffeine on sleep. So what we did find is, and in the papers where we report the sort of the pregame nights, what was happening. And we looked at six measures. We looked at sleep latency, which is basically the time it takes to fall asleep. We looked at time at sleep onset, the time you do fall asleep. We looked at sleep duration, which is self-explanatory, how long you were asleep. Wake after sleep onset. So this is the number of minutes you wake up throughout the night. And then from those measures, um, sorry, there's one final measure here, which was time at wake. So time you wake up in the morning. And from those five measures, then we calculate a measure of quality, which is referred to as sleep efficiency. And so what we did find that was leading into the game, that sleep latency decreased. So players fell asleep quicker. We found that players on average went to bed approximately between 11 and a half, 11 every night. 
Um, for sleep duration, they progressively increase sleep on the nights before the game. So we think that athletes are in Super Rugby are using the days beforehand to kind of sleep bank or sleep optimize. However, we did find that the increase in sleep uh, was driven from the training schedule. So basically, they didn't have to be in as early the next morning. Therefore, they actually slept longer the next day and got more sleep. Interesting. So that's the, that's the kind of pre-game factors, which is, which is very interesting. And we found this in a lot of other athletes too. But the effect of what I had on the um, after the game is even more interesting. So they fell asleep, you know, relatively, you know, easily after the game. However, they did not fall asleep on average till half two in the morning, and some players didn't go to bed as late as half eight the next morning on the uh-huh. Sunday. Yeah. And four players did not achieve any sleep whatsoever. So having so, a good time after the game, then. Well, there's a number of factors. Potentially. There. There's, yeah, there's the increase in the caffeine. There's post-game. Um, so these guys don't finish till nine, half nine. Obviously, you get shower, change, maybe some recovery, have a meal. There's also post-game media. Um, you know, and then maybe a couple of drinks or some socializing happening afterwards as well. Um, now, that all resulted in a quite a significant reduction in sleep duration, which uh, basically results in a sleep debt, which then took a number of days to recover. So it took an extra uh, additional three days before athletes were back up to the amount of same sleep they were having before the game. So basically what you see is when you look at the graphs is you see that sleep duration is significantly reduced after the game. So you get this kind of peaking before the game up a mountaintop, down into a valley of sleep duration, and then trying to climb back out again. And indeed, with some of the measures that we took over the season, we found similar patterns of sleep and wake throughout the season. In, a, in some other studies that we've looked at. So caffeine most notably affected sleep latency after the game, even though it wasn't too bad, but it did affect it. It affected um, sleep duration. And it also had a decrease in sleep efficiency or a quality measure as well. So it's not the only thing that's affecting sleep after the game, but we do believe it's one of the major factors that is associated with it. Absolutely, and it was surprising to see. I mean, it was, what, like five and a half hours the players were getting typically in terms of total sleep after the games? Yes, and like I said, four of them are 20% and did not achieve any sleep after the game. And is that a function of, you know, when people are used to getting up at a certain time throughout throughout the week, throughout the year for for training if they're athletes or just for regular folk getting up for work? You know, if they're going to bed later, these players are sort of naturally waking up at their normal waking time regardless if they're getting to bed late. Is Is that part of the story here? Yeah, that's a great point, Mark, because most people believe think would, would probably think, oh, well, they have the next day off. Surely they must just be able to sleep in and get extra sleep. But many of us will know that we do get used to the time of wake in the morning and it becomes a kind of a habitual pattern and we wake up. And the same thing happened with these athletes as well. So, um, And this, is, this links into another factor as well, which is what's called chronotype. And you may have heard this before when you have people who are either a morning person or an evening person. Um, these guys were kind of neater, so they were kind of, you know, in between seven and nine, mm-hmm. um, which ties in with the time they were waking up after the game as well. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to jumping into talking sleep and chronotypes here today. And of course, you know, the general suggestion for athletes is to get that eight hours of sleep per night. And in a recent paper that you've done, you know, talking about the chronotypes of elite athletes, can you maybe uh, dive into that and perhaps define the different chronotypes to give listeners uh, to get listeners on the same page, and then we can talk about differences m- in the general public compared to elite athletes. Yeah, I think um, the first thing about chronotypes is basically our circadian preference. So if you ask somebody whether they prefer waking up in the morning and, and going to bed earlier, then you would find that they're a morning type. So it's um, there's three main types. So we have morning types. So these are the type of people that go to bed earlier, wake up earlier, um, and they really struggle to stay awake past their, their usual bedtime. And on the other end of the scale, we have what we call night owls, and they prefer going to bed later and waking up later. And somewhere in the middle, we have intermediate types, which is about 70% of uh, the general adult population. Um, for athletes, it's, it's really important, well, especially for coaches, to really know what type their athlete is. Uh, it can be really important when we're scheduling recovery sessions or even training sessions or even as far as when 
athletes travel interstate or across internationally, you know, who they're rooming with. You don't really want to put a, what I call a chrono mismatch where you have one athlete that's a morning type and the other one's an evening type in the, in the same bedroom because they may disrupt each other either in the morning or at the night. So it's, it's really important to acknowledge the different types of athletes you have within your group. And you mentioned there sort of the general public falling into that intermediate 70%, uh, falling into that category. And of course, sort of evenly split then in the general public, 14% in the, in the morning type, 16% in the evening types. How does that shift when we get into talking about athletes and high-level athletes? Well, I guess athletes are no different to, to, to us general adult population. But when we start to delve into the different types of sports and, and the different types of chronotypes that are involved in different sports, um, it's really interesting because when we start to examine some morning type sports where they require to get up early to train, we tend to see that there are fewer and fewer evening types within morning sports. So um, it's, it's not necessarily surprising, but my question always is, do athletes tend to pursue and excel in sports that match their, their chronotype? So um, we examined a number of different sports, uh, team-based and individual sports. So cycling and triathlon are typically the ones that train in the early morning. And I think from memory, I th there was only there was no evening types within triathletes. And I think there was a 3% of evening types within the cycling groups that we have monitored. When we get to um, team-based sports, you start to see that, that general spread across intermediate evening and morning um, just like the general adult population. So typically it's more the morning sports have more morning types within that sport. Yeah, it was interesting to read, um, you know, you mentioned baseball players in one of the papers there and their chronotypes and how, you know, a, a batter who's more of a morning type will have a higher average in day games versus an evening type having a higher average in night games. Are there other uh, parallels in other sports where we're seeing this uh, chronotypes uh, dovetail into performance outcomes? Uh, that was one of the few papers that actually started to look at uh, chronotype and performance and batting averages. And there was one study, I think, was conducted in, in South Africa, which found marathon runners typically that were morning types were performing better than those that were that were evening types. So that's the only other study I can think of in terms of, of performance. Um, the other main the other main thing to consider is is the recovery of the athletes, because typically. The recovery sessions, uh, in, when I'm referring to uh, team sports here, are, are done in the early morning after a, a night match, which potentially could disrupt their dis – well, it does disrupt their, their total sleep time that they're getting and essentially their recovery. Yeah, it's interesting because they uh, recently, uh, in the baseball spring training here, uh, they had shifted a lot of the early morning sessions, you know, that typical 9 or 10 o'clock session. They'd shifted that later in the, uh, in the midday um, to allow just for that. So that's uh, interesting to see teams adapting to some of this research. And, you know, of course, your research in elite cyclists, you know, sleeping to a schedule, does chronotype play a part? Can you, you know, walk us through that study and, and again, tease out some of those key findings? Yeah, so that particular study was done, I think it was in 2010, and we had a, a 34, if memory serves me correctly, because it was a while ago now. Um, and, yeah, so... The, the cyclists really were a lot of morning types within that group. So um, there were, I think, 38% were morning types, which is really interesting because they most often train in the morning. And I always ask the question, is, it, is there a physiological advantage to train in the morning, such as sports like cycling and, and swimming? Because I know here in Australia we have a big swimming culture and, and they typically get them to, to train in the morning, but there's no physiological benefit to train that early in the morning. And I'm talking 5.30, 6 a.m. And what that does is actually truncate the, the amount of sleep the athletes are getting. So, And it's, just, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a legacy left from before the times where we, were, we had scholarships or um, professional sponsor, sponsorships to participate in sports. So you'd train before you had to go to work. Or it's, it's, it's something that's risen as a teenager where you train before you go to school. But once they get to an elite level and a professional contract type level, there is no real need to, to train in the early morning. And, and that's what they do still. And 
like you mentioned, there are a lot of sports and, and teams that are really catching on with adapting their training schedules to suit the recovery of their athletes. And, and that has a flow-on effect in terms of performance, their psychological state, and obviously the, the results that they can produce. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting stuff. And like you said, if you're getting up at 4.35, oftentimes, especially swimmers, rowers, you just you just can't go to bed early enough to, uh, to offset that. And so, um, you know, for folks who are choosing these sports, depending on their own chronotype, is it an unconscious self-selection? Are they sort of adapting to the, to the training yeah, sessions themselves? Great, or what's the... Yeah, that's, that's one of the questions we always discuss in the, in the lab is whether or not are they choosing themselves or, or are we adapting over time. And when I speak to different professors around my lab, they'll give me two or three different answers. So <laughs> it's a really tough question. But there is some adaptation that, that can take place. And then you'll get somebody else that will explain that it, it's, it's, it's a, a matter of biology. So I, I personally believe that you can adapt, and if we're an intermediate type, then you know you, you will be able to adapt your kind of circadian preference or your circadian behaviours to suit that particular to suit that particular sport and that training that training schedule. It's interesting, and of course, you know, on that note, you know, how important is a target bedtime or wait time for athletes? Yeah, well, I think that's that's one of the, the most important things is establishing regular bedtime and wake-up time for athletes and not just for athletes but the general population. Um, it basically sends your body into – sends your your brain the message that it's time to wake up or it's, it's bedtime. So that routine is really important and what we see even with athletes but – a little bit different so with the general population what they'll do is they'll they'll accumulate that kind of sleep debt during the working week and then on the weekend they'll compensate for that and we'll have a sleep in on the weekend and the same thing we've found with some of our studies with athletes is that when they are training they'll accumulate that sleep debt and then if there's a rest day you give them a rest opportunity or an increased sleep opportunity they will actually take that opportunity and and they will they will definitely sleep in on that rest day. So um, it's it's really important that while you need to sleep in, it's also important to establish that regular bedtime. And of course, it's very difficult when you've got various competition schedules that that may vary from week to week, um, depending on obviously what sport um, the athlete participates in. course in your recent paper optimizing sleep to maximize performance implications and recommendations for elite athletes uh, you talk just about that about the idea of performance impairments are found after 17 to 19 hours of wakefulness and that equivalent of the blood alcohol content of 0.05 percent which i think in some states or provinces would be legally intoxicated and of course 28 hours of wakefulness equivalent to uh, point one percent point ten percent of blood alcohol so basically legally drunk um I have three small kids at home, so this, for me, helps to explain a lot. But uh, could you talk about the effects of sleep loss on neurocognitive performance, so specifically areas around attention, uh, executive function, and learning? Sure. Well, that is a really diverse and, and broad area that you're talking about. Um, and there's a lot of research in that area, but very broadly, we do see that all of those domains of neurocognitive performance um, are negatively impacted by insufficient sleep. Um, so, attention—you know—really important for athletes who need to be focused during games or during a performance, um, and um, the executive or higher-level functioning, making decisions you know, applying strategies, flexibly thinking. Um, these are all things that even a night or two of sleep deprivation or this idea of sleep restriction, not getting enough sleep, you know, multiple days on end can really add up and have a negative impact in these domains. 
And I think a lot of athletes and definitely a lot of my clients, and I think everyone's guilty of this, this idea of catching up on sleep, you know, don't worry, I'm going to get some more on the weekend, I'll throw some more naps in, um, you know, can an athlete catch up on sleep after running low, say from maybe a training camp or travel or whatever it might be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some some nuance here. Certainly, if there's a kind of one-off short-term period where you're not getting enough sleep, you know, you certainly can um, either catch up or at least kind of regain normal day-to-day functioning with several nights of sufficient sleep. Um, I think the real danger is kind of this idea of running on not getting enough sleep during the week and then trying to catch up on the weekends as kind of a standard operating system. Um, There's really new research coming out in this domain, and I've had the opportunity to be a part of some of it, um, that shows that you can't really catch up to the extent that we would like or hope um, with longer sleep on the weekends when you're restricting sleep during the week. Um, We recently published a paper looking at kind of impairments in pain modulation, showing that you will still have kind of changes in the underlying pain regulation physiology um, after two nights, for example, weekend nights of catch-up sleep after um, restricting sleep during the week when you measure that kind of a couple of weeks in a row on an ongoing basis. So that really, in my perspective, is where the danger lies. You really want to be working towards protecting enough time for sleep on a night-to-night basis that you can have the occasional variability and navigate that without too much trouble rather than trying to run on a really lean system where you're barely getting enough sleep on the week and trying to or thinking that you're catching up on the weekend and not really getting there because we know that there are so many negative effects of not getting enough sleep, athletic performance, health, and overall well-being. Yeah, very well said. I mean, definitely when people start redlining, you know, whether it's health and you know, mood, anxiety, um, or as you mentioned, sort of performance and some of the physical performance metrics, obviously pain tolerance you mentioned, but what about things as well like injury risk um, or oh. risk of illness? Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Those are two areas where there's um, not a ton of research, but the data that's out there is pretty compelling, um, showing that there's a the study done in adolescents showing that um, individuals who slept then less than eight hours a night were more than one and a half times more likely to experience a significant injury compared to those sleeping eight hours a night. Um, And, you know, injury, if you're an athlete, clearly no one wants to get injured, but this also has, you know, a significant impact on your life moving forward, whether it's kind of how you're spending your next six weeks or six months, um, but also, you know, clearly can have an impact on your, your future physical performance potential. Um, And so that's something that we really want to take seriously. And this seems to be a particular importance in younger populations. We don't have a lot of data in adults yet, but I would imagine that the relationships are similar. Um, And in terms of illness susceptibility, um, there have been some really interesting experimental studies where they actually have had healthy adults track their sleep um, and then come into a lab where they are inoculated with an active dose of cold virus. Um, these are very <laughs> willing volunteers. I'm not sure. Say, must be, that's I'm definitely up. taking it for science. So that's great. I know. Um, you know, we, we fully kind of support those individuals, even if we may not choose to join them. Um, but the study found that individuals sleeping less than seven hours a night before the inoculation of this cold virus were three times more likely to develop a cold um, after this direct application of the cold virus than those sleeping eight hours or more. And we also see um, parallel findings when we look at actual vaccines vaccine responses. So if you are not getting a ton of sleep before you get a vaccination, you actually can have a um, blunted immune response to the vaccine. So I think this is particularly timely to be talking about as we're heading into cold and flu season um, because, you know, sleep is one of the, you know, really few things you can do outside of, you know, good hand hygiene and getting vaccinated that you can concretely do that's really going to potentially have a significant impact on helping you stay healthy when 
you know, your coworkers or your teammates are sneezing and coughing around you. I hope you enjoyed this installment of Rewind with the special focus on sleep and circadian rhythms. Again, you can check out the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast for all the links to the original episodes. And again, happy to announce the pre-sale of my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports, is available on Amazon. And if you buy a pre-sale copy, just send us over your proof of purchase at info at drbubs.com and you'll get that free bonus interview material You'll also be entered in to win the $150 gift packs from Organica, the one-to-one visits with myself as well. And if you'd like to do a bulk order for your gym or clinic, you can get the 50% discount and a chance to win a free talk at your facility. So lots of cool stuff here going on. Appreciate you guys taking the time. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, definitely reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at DrBubs. And if you're enjoying the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a review, share with friends. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Fantastic. Have a great weekend and we'll see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.